You're listening to Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, episode 16. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, the podcast that puts Bitcoin knowledge within everyone's reach. As always, I'm your host, Josh Humphrey, and today I am joined by another podcaster, Ansel Lindner, who hosts the Bitcoin and Markets podcast. And he also has another project, if you are a patron of his, um, called Bitcoin is Freedom. And uh, he does that with another guy named Jeff, who unfortunately couldn't be with us today, but uh, we're going to be talking kind of about crypto anarchy and kind of what that looks like. So Ansel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. Uh, It's a pleasure to be on and I love all the new content creators coming out right now and especially the ones that are centered around doing your own research, making all this accessible to people. So uh, love the show. Well, thanks. Uh, Your show actually was kind of one of the inspirations for me to start my show, um, actually, because I was listening to your stuff. Uh, your your Bitcoin and Markets is really nice because uh, I'm trying to think when I really started listening. It was probably like November or December, and then I kind of went back and listened to some older episodes as well. But uh, I appreciate that you put the the financial, the metrics within the context of what's going on in the world and what's going on with miners and other events and, you know, conferences or any other things like you put all the pieces together to where it's not in a bubble. Uh, you know, it's not in a vacuum, like here's numbers that don't mean anything. Yeah. Bitcoin is, is a, a fractal of the real world. So, uh, what goes on in Bitcoin is going on everywhere, and it all everything affects everything else. Definitely, definitely. Now, how long have you been doing the Bitcoin and Markets podcast? Oh, man, I should go back and look at my first episode. I think it's getting close <laughs> to two years. It's getting close okay. to two years. Yeah. I have, uh, I think, 110 shows. Okay. And then you've recently started this other thing, uh, Bitcoin is Freedom, that's kind of a, about, you know, what would the world look like if, uh, or you you describe it because I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of fumble over it. What is your intention here? Well, it started by uh, looking for a way to monetize the show, and <laughs> I'll, I'll be totally honest with that because it's it's a, a like I said, there's a lot of new podcasters coming out, and a lot of people are are looking for ways to monetize the show. So um, I was like, hey, Patreon looks good. I, f- I follow a few people uh, on YouTube that I support on Patreon. So I thought, hey, this could be a way to uh, at least uh, make the wife happy, you know, like uh, show that I'm bringing in a little bit from this activity that I was doing so much. So, uh, and then we just, we're trying to, Jeff and I, he's a friend from the local meetup here. And uh, he and I were trying to decide on a show format, like what we could do it on. And we both got into Bitcoin from the anarchy side, from the kind of sound, I me mean, more sound money, but at least both from the libertarian anarchy side. So uh, it was just kind of a natural fit. Like, why are we all here? Oh, well, because Bitcoin is freedom. So that, that's that's where that came from. I 
I don't know which came first for me, like the Liberty stuff. I think it kind of all happened at the same time. I don't know. I had, I actually had worked a couple of jobs within the university system here and just saw how inefficient government does things. <laughs> and so, yeah. and then now I work in healthcare. So again, it's still the same thing. You know, I don't work directly for the government, but I just see how they screw up everything. And so I, I think I was just kind of poised and I hit all the things at the same time, but, um, well, Bitcoin, yeah. Bitcoin woke you up. Is that what you're saying? Well, I see. I don't know. And it and it's funny because I think it's the same same friend of mine that introduced me both to Bitcoin and things like uh, Rothbard. Okay. And it was kind of all at the same time. So I don't know. It all worked together. Definitely. You know, you've said, I've seen you, you said this on Twitter multiple times and you kind of talked about it in the, the show. Um, you know, we need to defund these people. Speaking of the government let's talk about kind of why because i think i don't know i think when you say that within the bitcoin space people people kind of get it but um there's a lot of people that don't get it uh, just in the in the day-to-day like you go to to work which actually real quick i assume you have a different job when you say that you're trying to monetize the podcast and i feel like everyone i talk to in bitcoin is working like two or three jobs and a project. So you're, what's your, what's your background? Uh, well, I was, I was in college and I got a degree in economics with emphasis in math. And uh, that was right after 9-11. And I was okay. a, you know, constitutionalist, libertarian, minarchist type back then. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go into the military and support the constitution and our way of life. Right. Well, uh, yeah. So I did that for 10 years, took me 10 years to get out. I, I, I very quickly understood that we weren't here for the American people. We were here for somebody else and Mm -hmm. the, you know, the powers that be, et cetera. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I got out as fast as I could, which happened to be 10 years because of the commitment that I got when for my certain job that I had. And yeah, since then, I well, during that time in the military, I was deployed a lot and I missed my first three kids. I missed their childhood, like at least the first major events in their life, you know, like when they start crawling and when they start walking and all that stuff. So, um, when I got out, I was like, okay, I'm going to stay at home. Uh, you know, I looked for jobs, like not with my heart in it to find a job, but uh, my wife had a good job. So, um, she went to work and I stayed home with the kids for a while. That was the plan. And with Bitcoin doing so well, and, and this is my, now my passion in life. So I just, I stuck with this and I, so I do Bitcoin full time, but I'm also a dad. Uh, we also had a, a son, my first son, uh, last year. So I stay home with him and it's pretty awesome to, that's my first time, even though it's my fourth kid, that's my first time seeing the crawling first and the walking and, and stuff like that. The major, major events. Yeah. That's a big deal, man. I, I've got two and, uh, kids are awesome, but <laughs> yeah. And I like, I like to, I like to talk about my kids. I mean, some, some people, I know the argument about you don't want to expose your kids because let's face it, if Bitcoin goes to a million dollars, you know, you, there could be some danger. Your family could be 
in danger. But uh, I think it's really important to spread the mes- messages that you be- you believe in. And I believe in family. I believe in sound money and, you know, everything that comes from that. And so we'll get into the the government stuff, but I like to share stuff about my family too. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point because I think it's easy for people to dismiss like, oh, you're a crazy you know, Unabomber or something like that. If you think that the government's the problem and it's like, no, uh, you can be a normal person who loves their family and wants to provide for their kids and, you know, doesn't want their kids to be, I don't know, militant, crazy people. Like you can be a normal person and recognize that the government is not the solution. Yeah. And I know we're getting off topic here on Bitcoin, but um, <laughs> for example, like this down market was actually really good. I, I liked it because it was, it got so crazy last year, right? In 2017, it was just, yeah. people could, you couldn't fight people off with a stick that wanted to get in and asking you advice on how to buy and, and all these things. Uh, but this down market, it's like crickets now. I mean, my, my local meetup went from 25 people every single week, every Sunday we meet up um, down to four. And wow. so that, that gave me time to, Hey, I planted a garden with my kids, right? And so <laughs> you you, you got to have the yin and the yang. And uh, I think this the anarchy perspective kind of uh, – you'll find a lot of people like that in the anarchy side. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's – anyway. <laughs> um, Sorry. I derailed <laughs> no, us. No, that's fine. No, that's totally fine. So let's then let's go back to kind of – we can talk a little bit about – um, you know, why we need to defund the government. Um, you know, certainly I guess you've got the perspective from the military. Is there anything in particular or, um, or you have other things as well? Uh, well, I, I've seen the worst, I, I think. Uh, I mean, obviously people have seen <laughs> much worse than I have because I was in the air force. So I didn't, I didn't see a lot of this stuff firsthand, but, um, I've been exposed to the worst and it's the government doesn't have a soul that that's, that's the big thing Uh, on all aspects, like not even just warfare, but how they take care of you. Like you said, you work in healthcare system. Well, they're not really in the business of healthcare. They're in the business of treatment. So they want to extend your illness so that they can make more money. Um, you know, selling you pharmaceuticals and stuff. Uh, I mean, anything you look at in life, the government is is they're they're pitted against you they're pitted against the the individual yeah absolutely like i mean from my experience you know like i said i worked in things that were not healthcare previously and it was just like everything the government touches they do super inefficiently yeah. and and you kind of talk about efficiency as a big issue yeah um you know and then when I got into healthcare, I realized because the biggest payers in the healthcare system are Medicare and Medicaid and just the things that they will and won't pay for are ridiculous. Um, you know, going back to the kind of the military thing, um, I've taken care of multiple patients, uh, who were veterans coming out of, coming out of surgery, coming out of anesthesia, you know, and they've got PTSD and, you know, they, they can't help it, but they're waking up thinking they're, back in the middle of Afghanistan or Iraq that they've been attacked. And, you know, it's just like, this is what we have to show for 17 plus years of meddling and stuff that we 
you know, this is not about 9-11. No, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a tragedy. I mean, I, I'm not for the military anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm for the, the, the individuals there. And I think that uh, it's tragic how they've been taken in by the lies and uh, destroyed. Their, their whole psyche has been destroyed. A, lot of the, a huge percentage of the homeless in this country are vets, uh, just because they are like that, you know, they have constant nightmares. They wake up, they can't trust anybody. They have uh, massive PTSD uh, and we just, uh, we don't blame the right people, right? We blame the terrorists when we should be blaming the dude in the white house. So. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like here are people who were willing to give up their life to protect everyone else, but they were sent over there for the, that's what they thought they were doing. And that's not really why they were there. Right. Yeah. I guess that's probably sufficient. And I mean, I mean, we could go on and talk about social welfare programs and things like that and how they don't actually help the people, but they create a state of dependence as well. Um, I don't know. You could pick any real, I, I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, pick an area that the government's involved in and I could probably figure out a way that it's not helpful and it's detrimental to the people involved. Oh, definitely. I mean, and it's, you know, I like anarchy because it's holistic. It's, it's um, not only a complete concept philosophically, but it's a, uh, every piece works with every other piece and you're not trying to fix a market failure. Uh, that's what they always tell you is the market fails. And so we have to intervene here or there. And that's because you're intervening. You, for every time you intervene, you create two more market failures, quote unquote market failures. Um, but it's just because you're, you're causing the problem. Uh, anarchy teaches you that uh, everything works properly, just like a well-functioning ecosystem. Uh, the market is the same way. Uh, and there's evolution in the market. Uh, so you just got to get the government makes everything worse. Right. Right. And some of it too is, you know, people, I think here you talk about anarchy and I say you, I just mean in general, someone talk about anarchy and they think that means like, there's no rules to society. Like you're, you're um, Kurt Russell and escape from New York or escape from LA or whatever. It's like, no, it's not, you know, a bunch of trash can fires with the letter A painted across the walls. Like it's, there are rules. There's just not rulers. Right. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. There's something else I was going to say now. I forgot. Oh man. Oh, it's a, it's a consistent thing, right? So it's like, like you said, you're not trying to figure out how to explain this one aspect that doesn't really work, you know? Cause I think, when you start out, when you start down the, the rabbit hole of libertarianism, it's like, oh, well, yeah, th we need to get the government out of these, all these other areas, but we'll, we'll make it, make this exception for, because we, we don't understand how, how could you do police or how could you do, you know, without, you know, Marauds or whatever. <laughs> it's like at some point, I think if you keep going, you just realize like, uh, anarchy is actually the most consistent way of doing it and just let people figure it out. Yeah. And it all, it all comes back to fiat money, right? Because like, okay, it's, the government can't have all these welfare programs if they can't pay for it. Well, in, in the past you, on the gold standard with sound money, honest money, they, they couldn't just 
spend to infinity. They, they had some check and they had to in some way earn that ability to spend. But with fiat money, it's, it's like unchecked. So you put the psychopaths that want to control everything. Um, you put them in power and you give them a blank checkbook. I mean, you're just asking for really bad things to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's, and it's not, it's not like there's a physical printing. I mean, there is to some extent a physical printing press because they, you know, when dollar bills get trashed and stuff, they have a certain rate that they replace those with. But, um, you know, it's, it's because it's so digital now anyways, that they just, you know, the fed loans it out to the, um, the banks or whatever, and then it gets dispersed again on a multiplier. And I think people don't get that, that that's actually already happening. Yeah. It's, it's a pyramid scheme kind of everything's stacked on top of the last one and and doubled down. And I just listened to a really good pot. There's a, a, you know, the Mises Institute. Right. Yeah. I'm actually going uh, later this year. Oh, really? Cool. I'm excited about that. Cool. Yeah. They, they have a, on SoundCloud, they have a stream where they, I think they also do videos on YouTube, but uh, I listened to the audio version just today about, uh, this uh man i forget her name now but she talked about bitcoin and a little bit of blockchain i don't want to get into blockchain but uh she (laughs) she talked about bitcoin and uh, she she also based it on the traditional finance system and how broken it is Uh, the we we uh, often think okay there's a printing press and then you learn well it's not really a printing press they they loan out more than the deposits that they have. Uh, so they kind of create money out of nothing. Uh, but then she was talking about also the repo market for us treasury bills is a huge way that the federal reserve directly creates money. So I have to go and study up on that, but, um, there's just so many ways that the government and their lackeys, the cronies, how they create money out of thin air. Okay, that's really interesting. Send me that link later, and I'll put that in the show okay. notes. Um, I don't know what episode this is. <laughs> 16, I think. Bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash 16 will be all the show notes, and so we'll put that link in there because I want to check that out okay. too. Uh, okay, so then with that transition, how do we use how do we use Bitcoin to, to defund the state? How do we opt out? Uh how do we use it to defund? Well, um, so, okay. A, a little bit goes a long way. Um, it, in Bitcoin, the market is relatively shallow, right? If you put $10,000 into your, into some stock on the stock market, you're not going to move the price, but, uh, in Bitcoin, you actually could move the price a little bit, even with that small amount of money it would be for a very short time. But, uh, let's say, a thousand people just decide to put $10,000 in, you're, you're going to be moving the market already. So it just takes a little bit to go a long way. Um, and then people start chasing rabbits. This is one of Trace Mayer's biggest uh, points that he talks about a lot with, uh, you know, why, why is everybody investing in altcoins? Well, because people chase rabbits. They see the price going up and then they buy in. It's the same thing. If Bitcoin starts mooning, people are going to buy in to Bitcoin too. And, uh, you know, the, the price will just keep going up in, in longer term cycles. I think this one was 
pretty long, but uh, I think the next one could be the big one. We'll see what happens. Uh, but so as you're doing that, you're also diverting investment into the traditional markets. You're, 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 uh, at, you're bidding down the price of the dollar. And as you bid down the price, as enough people bid down the price of the dollar and you divert money away from the stock market and the bond market, you're going to make a sizable impact. And it only takes a small amount of people at this point right now. Uh, in the future, when when the market's deeper and it's more liquid, of course, it's going to take a lot more to move the market. But we're not talking about uh, billions of dollars to move the market. We're talking millions of dollars. So I think just that little bit uh, that everybody can put in $100 a month or whatever they can afford, uh, and you, you can actually start hurting the traditional financial system hurting the dollar. And when that happens, the government has to cut back, or we've seen a couple shutdowns now in the past couple of years. Maybe the government has longer shutdowns and they start having financial problems. Um, and finally, as this whole snowball gets rolling, then there's a Bitcoin electorate. That's going to be the final check on uh, government like getting really totalitarian is eventually like, let's say, I think they, I've seen statistics saying like three or 4% of the U S owns Bitcoin. Now, if you can get that number up to 15 or 20%, it's going to be really hard to do anything against Bitcoin. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. I see when you're saying electorate, you're talking about like, it's hard for them to pass legislation because it's spread out across enough people that they're going to push back. Yeah. People will vote them out or the, the, 20% of the population can make a credible threat where 2% really can't make a credible threat. And and all of this is kind of with a hodler mindset though, right? I mean, it's, it doesn't do you any good to buy it and then sell it again when it goes high because you're putting that money back, you know, the money then is going back in. Plus now you're paying capital gains taxes. Right. Yeah. I, um, hodlers have a different goal in mind. So they, they want, um, they want to hold it long-term and never cash out. They, they want to hold it until they can, uh, till it becomes their daily use money. And, uh, so yeah, that's what I would say. It's, it's the, uh, the matrix meme where, where Neo says, you're telling me yeah. I can sell my Bitcoin for millions and Morpheus says, I'm telling you when it, when the time's right, right you yeah. won't have to. Well, I, I talk about this with Jeff every now and then on the show is, uh, uh, well, cause we were talking about, I think we were talking about the housing market one time and, uh, he was trying to tell me like a quarter of a Bitcoin would buy a house. I'm like, dude, you're going to be able to buy a house for a 10th of a Bitcoin one day. So, uh, I don't know. It, it's, that's, that's what hodlers have in mind. They don't have in mind making fiat gains. Yeah. This was something that kind of took me a while to get was, um, and I wish I'd gotten it several years ago because I bought a little Bitcoin back out of 13, 14, but I wasn't really paying attention to it too much. And I just kind of looked at it like a, um, I thought, Hey, this will be really cool if one day it takes off, but I didn't know it was going to happen so quick, relatively speaking. You know, I thought another 10 years from now, it'll be up to a couple of thousand dollars. And it's just like, I was checking the price, I guess last year, you know, periodically. And it's like, oh, this just keeps going up and now I can't buy in. And then 
just talking to people and it's like, stop, stop trying to time the markets. It's never going to work for you. This thing is going to take over. Just start accumulating. Right. I, I had a guy, um, he was an Indian immigrant and he came to the meetup and yeah, I think the price was like 16,000 or something and he had to buy. And I told him, no, I was like, don't wait, dude, or don't do it now. Wait, just wait, man. It's going parabolic right now. Just wait. And he couldn't wait. And he ended up, I think he ended up, oh, then uh, he bought like a 10th of one. I was like, that's good, man. That's good. Just do that and then scale in as it goes down and stuff. Uh, but no, he ended up buying, I think he probably got like almost at the top of the market. And oh man. So yeah, you can you can wait. I mean, this the the whole Bitcoin revolution is gonna happen a lot faster than we think, especially coming from the gold bug side, which I did. Um man, that's that's a long fight. People have been fighting the gold fight for 40 years, right? Um, and so it feels like it's never coming. And in that relative to that, Bitcoin's gonna happen in a blink of an eye. So some people you you want to be smart about it, uh, but at the same time, you can wait a month and then buy. You, you don't have to be like, I need to get it right now today. That, that'll drive you crazy. That's when you know it's at the top. Yeah, well, that's the FOMO. Right, yeah. You know, the, I guess the ultimate ideal would then be to uh, work in some kind of job where you get paid in Bitcoin because then you're not having to to go through the exchange process. Yeah, that that would be ideal for many people. But um but then again, you know, and, and I think a lot of people in the with the hodler mentality say like, "Oh, we're not, you know, Bitcoin's not about coffee, although we can do it now because lightning." Um <laughs> but <laughs> well, you know, that video is circulating out there on Twitter now, but you know, to some extent then shouldn't we it shouldn't be all about merchant adoption and everybody being able to accept it, but shouldn't we press a little bit for a little more, a little more merchant adoption? I, I know. I don't think we need to push for merchant adoption. I think we need to build tools and that's what an entrepreneur will do, right? Is they'll, they'll risk and build tools for these merchants or they will become a merchant themselves and offer services or products for Bitcoin. Uh, but that's uh, the market will take care of that. And we don't need to go out and get people to adopt. It's, it's going to be a natural thing in my opinion. So you think you, th okay. So you're saying, uh, I'm going to see if I can reword this and correct me if I'm wrong. What you're saying is if we build the right tools and we just keep at it, then as the price goes up, more and more merchants will want to accept it on their own without having to go out and, and preach this to them. Yeah, everybody's going to want Bitcoin. Everybody. Uh, look out on the street when you're driving down the road and you're in traffic. Just look around at you. Nobody owns Bitcoin yet, but they all will want it. And so if they own a business, they're going to accept Bitcoin. So I, I, I don't it's, – it's just like almost like an inevitable thing. You just let it happen and everybody's going to want Bitcoin and everybody will eventually accept it. You don't have to worry about it. But I mean, the thing is, it's a misconception. People think that value comes from spending, but value doesn't come from spending. The value in Bitcoin is going to end up coming from the traditional market falling apart and 
draconian measures and things like Venezuela or uh, the Italian banking crisis. Or right now, I think this year alone, Turkey has the, I think it's Turkish lira is their currency has lost 50% of its value. So those are the type of things that are going to push people into Bitcoin. And we don't have to, and it's like I said, it's a very small amount. If we have, seriously, if a billion dollars came into Bitcoin in the next month, the price would moon drastically. Yeah. So it it just takes a a small amount to make a big difference. So what do you see, you know, you kind of talked about um, crackdowns and things like that. Did you see um, recently, and I'll put the link to this in the show notes, but uh, I saw a thing where Australia banned transactions over $10,000, cash transactions over $10,000, which I'm like, how do you, I mean, if it's private parties, how are you regulating that anyways? That's kind of stupid, but um, you know, I guess you can't go buy a car from a used dealership in cash. I don't know how their car dealerships work over there, but um you know, do you think things like this are going to push people more into Bitcoin or scare people off of it? Oh, it's absolutely going to push people more into Bitcoin. Anytime you put limits on use of, of money, people wake up, right? Um, if you, like in the United States, we do, at least I have in the past, dealt with ATM withdrawal limits. Like I needed the cash, but I could only withdraw, you know, $600 from the ATM or something. And, uh, even though it's my money. And and if you go if you go right. into the bank and you try to withdraw money, oh, they don't like a big sum of money, say ten thousand dollars above or something like that, the, then you have to go through all these steps and you probably can't probably can't get it that day and all these things. So uh, the more hurdles you put in in people's way, the more they're gonna f- look for a better solution. Uh so yeah, this thing in Australia, I don't really know the details of it, but uh it's probably just a typical government crackdown like we saw last year in India and, and all that. Yeah. I think I, I have to go find the article again, but I think it had, it was an effort to limit drug stuff or something, you know, equally as stupid. Um, so what do you see as potential attack vectors in the U S I mean, they've been so far pretty, uh, hands off as far as legislation. Now there, I mean, there's been individual cities or states, you know, New York had the bit license thing. Um, but what do you see coming down the road potentially? Um, I think it could continue. Uh, I think you, you've heard, heard me talk in the past about, uh, the generational battle that's coming and I'll touch on that, uh, the second half of this answer, but, uh, I think it'll continue kind of light touch, but they're going to do more KYC. They're going to do uh, all the stuff that you are used to in banking because people are used to that and it it won't make that many waves. They're not going to like outright ban it or anything like that. And then Wall Street's going to try to financialize it. So they're going to have derivatives on it. They're going to try to push the price down, um, use it for, you know, have some sort of product that they can fractional reserve so that it feels like the supply is higher than it really is. Um, we'll see all those types, all types of attacks like that. Um, but my boy's crying. Sorry if you can hear that. Um, what was no, what did I say? The second half of my answer was, and no, I forgot it. Something about the generational attack. Oh yeah. Okay. So the generational attack is, um, well, it's not really an attack. It's that, uh, 
you know, people, pensioners that are about to get their pension or they may have, might have just, like the baby boomer generation. It's a huge uh, uh, block of people that are going to be retiring here in the next few years. And Bitcoin's going to come in and they're going to be able to blame, the government's going to be able to blame Bitcoin for why their pension, they can't get their pension or why their pension is worthless now. You know, and so these these boomers are going to almost outright attack these Bitcoiners. And it's going to be a very hostile environment. But at the same time, you're going to have this Bitcoin electorate that can stand up for itself. So there's going to be, I can even see like major political divide that Bitcoin is one of these hot button issues that's talked about in elections and things. Um, it's going to be pretty big. Yeah. You know, it's something I, I've got several coworkers in my department who are getting very close to retirement age. And it's like, I feel like I've made progress by helping them be able to use Amazon to shop for things from their phone, <laughs> you know? And, it, and I don't mean that in an ugly way, like, but that's just where they were when I started working there. It's like, that was scary to them, yeah. you know? And they, and honestly, they have made progress in that area, but they, you know, to, to even begin to explain Bitcoin to them would, I just think be such a hard thing for them to understand as I, my parents don't get it. I've tried explaining it to them. They don't really get it. And, um, you know, I try and say things to my coworkers, like you need to be careful about your, you know, your 401k and stuff, because, you know, it's been enough time. It's been what, 10 years, like we're headed for another downturn in the market. It's coming. I'm telling you, Mm -hmm. You know, but they just, I don't know, they don't see it. Well, that part of their, their critical thinking is shut off, right? They, they've been programmed for so long that they, they, they can't question certain assumptions or else like their whole psyche would crumble. So I think Bitcoin is there, but it is at the same time, it's a huge red pill for, uh, the younger people. And like we saw with, uh, Giancarlo from the CFTC, and he said, we owe it to our kids to not poo-poo this whole crypto thing and to give it, uh, you know, uh, this is the next generation and this is what they are interested in. So there are going to be some people like that, but it's definitely going to be a generational divide. I have some other attacks that I can talk about here if if you want me to go into those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, real quick, though, I was going to s- there was something else I was going to say. I'm sure you've seen, like, I know Illinois is an example. I think there's other places too. They already have so much in unfunded liabilities for these pensions. You were talking about pensions earlier, so that's what made me think of it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's like they're already having problems with it. But I agree, they're probably going to try and blame Bitcoin because Bitcoin is going to end up being, like, the tipping point for, for that stuff, I think. Yeah, it's a, and it's a good scapegoat, right? Because it's yeah. people don't understand it. So, oh, it's evil, and that's easy to get people to think that. And there's a lot of people uh, I talked about on the show. There's people mistake. Uh, uh, what, what did I say? Nationalism for freedom or they equate nationalism and freedom, yeah. especially in the United States. This is really bad. I mean, uh, you know, the flag waving people and this is coming from a vet, right? Like the flag waving people they will kill you if you say something bad about the government or something bad about the United States. They, and if you take their, if they demonize Bitcoin, uh, those flag waving people will easily turn on, uh, 
Bitcoiners. So it, it's it's a little bit scary, but at the same time, you know, everything, at least in in our lifetimes, uh, worries have been overblown, and hopefully, we're doing that now. Sorry to jump around on you here. Is uh, that's no, right. I have attack vectors. So Bitcoin is very secure. And there's not a lot of attack vectors out there for Bitcoin, at least code-wise, because it's so decentralized and uh, we shot down the biggest kind of attacks last year when they tried to place security bugs into the code. That's what I believe all those things were last year. I agree with JW. He said that they're, all these hard forks, are they're just trying to weaken the security of Bitcoin somehow. Um, and they're predicated on a social attack vector. So the, the, code, the code is super, super secure, but human beings are the weak link in all security. Right when you, when hackers try to hack into a big company, they try to fool a human being. And then they get that human being to give you their password somehow, or, you know, they, they, they trick the human. That's the weak link. So, uh, right. That's what they've been, the, how they've been trying to attack Bitcoin. And so podcasts like mine and like yours here that are education focused, uh, you know, information focused, those are super, super valuable. So do you think that that. you think that, uh, you and I are putting ourselves at risk then to some extent? Um, I, I think so. Yeah, I do. I do. I think so. Um, I mean, I don't, I'm not a whale and I openly say that I'm not a whale. I, I mean, I, I could have bought at Mt. Gox way back in the day, but they wanted too much information. And so I said, screw that. Right. But, um, uh, I, I'm not a whale. I don't own a ton of Bitcoin and, um, it's, we, we are in danger somewhat, but, no, I, I do worry about the family thing, like I said at the beginning sometimes, but uh, you just got to be brave. I mean, this is what men, men are about, standing up for what they believe in and being freedom fighters. Uh, that's what I kind of picture myself as. Uh, y- you got to stand up for the truth and be a man sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, you know, there's people who are doing far more in – far more restrictive places. So, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really worried about not yet. Anyways, there might come a point where I, where I worry a little more about it, but I'm not worried right now. But, uh, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't mean to sound like super important or anything, but I think that people are, that are the public eye at least. Um, and that's what we're doing by doing podcasts and we are in the limelight, but the, you know who I'm really scared for, honestly, are the core developers. Absolutely. And I'm glad that Bitcoin is kind of getting to the point where it can't be upgraded anymore because then they're, they'll be safe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of am concerned for people like, you know, Jimmy song, who's out there educating people on how to develop it or, um, yeah. you know, other other people that are devs. I mean that so so that brings up something that I've considered as like a uh, uh, a potential attack vector is like what if they tr- you know try and get somebody in the NSA or whatever in as a as a core dev you know to to <laughs> to work on the code right and then just slowly start pushing it towards something that makes it easier for them to mess around with. Yeah, that's the, 
I mean, some people will say Gavin Andreessen was that person already uh, because a lot of people think he was compromised. And I, I don't, I think it's worthwhile to, to talk about that, but I, I, there's no proof of anything like that. Um, he did talk to the CIA early on, right before Satoshi left, actually. He said his last communication with Satoshi was, I'm going to the CIA to give him a brief on Bitcoin. Mm. So uh, that, that that's a possible tech factor, but that's why we have this long, drawn-out process, peer review everything, in and out. And I tell you, these cypherpunks, these guys, the core developers, the, the, the thinkers, they've been thinking about this for decades, and they're, it's, it's very hard to pull one over on them. What do you think? Uh, do you think things like uh, altcoins are are an attack? Uh, I don't think they're all uh, consciously an attack. Okay, but but I do I do think that they are uh, in effect attacks on Bitcoin. Yes, more like a a, a trial. Yeah, a trial. And, and first, I mean, this is this is a. By no means do I think that I know the the answers to all of these questions but this is sure. just my current my current yeah. understanding speculating to some extent here yeah because i i mean in the past i was like when i first got in i remember like 2013 2014 i was blockchain and I, I, the other day i was looking on the internet at some I, like i typed in blockchain and i looked it on the images you know on google you could look at the images for yeah. that word and like there are all these diagrams and things and um, like that's what I was drawing back in 2014 because I was like trying to understand like how oh this is blockchain everything decentralized everything, um, and so you grow and you learn more and so this is my current understanding. Uh, I think that altcoins, a lot of them are outright scams. Total 100% iota. It's yeah. a 100% scam. Paycoin 100% scam. Bcash 100% scam. Uh, but there, there are some that they're honestly trying. Uh, they don't mean any ill will, but it does kind of delay Bitcoin's adoption a little bit. So w when these, these engineers and the developers, whatever, they could be working on Bitcoin or lightning or whatever, they're working on their silly altcoin. That's not going to go anywhere. So, uh, it is it's a waste is what it is. Maybe not an attack is, is the wrong word, but it is a complete waste. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. It's a waste because you yeah, like you said, they could be working on, on something beneficial of Bitcoin. Yeah. And uh, another thing too, is that uh, I used to think that they, all coins were test beds. Like that you find out something that works and then it can get come into Bitcoin because it's open source and, if it's valuable, Bitcoin will adopt it, uh, but nothing really has. The, the only thing that people can say somewhat that might have come from an altcoin is the user-activated soft fork because it was first used in Litecoin, but yeah. it it wasn't it wasn't uh, uh, proposed first in Litecoin. It, it was proposed first in Bitcoin. It was just used first in Litecoin. So that's like the only thing people can really point to that Bitcoin used as an innovation. Uh, and when they asked Dr. Back, like maybe a couple months ago, somebody asked him on camera, they're like, is there anything that you see out there in the altcoin space that you find interesting at all? 
<laughs> and he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was it? Just no? Yeah, pretty much. It was like one or two words, not really, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Well, you know, and he's one of those guys that's been around doing this stuff since before Bitcoin was Bitcoin too. Yeah, he he's part of the history. Yep. Do you think, because um, this is something that I don't know if you know who Dave Smith is, um, but I've kind of been listening to him and he's been talking, not, not from a Bitcoin side at all, just from a political standpoint about states seceding and you know the US breaking up. Do you think that there's going to come a point, um, you know, as the as the federal government is unable to kind of maintain control, maintain their reputation, do you see any states seceding and saying, you know what, we're, we're going to be done with this. You can't control it anymore. We're going to take, take back over and we're just going to separate and cut our, you know, cause we don't want to be saddled with your debt. I think that's a really good uh, question to ask because I, I do think that government will get more local, the sound money, hard money of Bitcoin, you'll you'll see the breakup of most of these nation states uh, to more local type government and secession fits right in there. Uh, I don't think though that it's going to be really a choice. I think one day, kind of like the lights in, in Washington, D.C. don't come on. And so then in Austin, they're sitting there like, well, shit, what do we do, guys? I guess we, I guess... We, we're seceding. Like we, somebody's got to pick up the torch, right? And that's going to happen yeah. in all the, all the state capitals. And then very quickly they'll be like, "Well, shit, what do we do? There's no, there's there's no financial system, or you know, whatever the case is. I, I think it's going to be more similar to that than a, a state actually forcefully seceding from the union. But if there is one, I do think it's Texas. I mean, they. You know, being in the military, it's like, God, it might not be as high as 25%, but there's at least 10% of the entire military is from Texas. So, yeah, if we got a lot of people, but you know, the only, sorry to interrupt you real quick. The, the only thing, cause I've thought about that before and, uh, yeah. cause I live in Texas and I was just like, you know, I think Texas has enough resources on its own. It's got enough um, you know, Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, enough big cities to, and, and enough universities and whatever to, to have the various job, you know, it's got oil, it's got all these things to, to survive. I don't know how well we'd thrive on our own, but, um, crap, where was I going with that? Um, oh, but like things like we also have Fort Hood, right? So yeah. it's like, I don't know that we would be able to just say like, we're done, it's over, you know, take your federal stuff and get out because I think having Fort hood, there's also bases in, in San Antonio as well, where the, you know, we couldn't do it today. Let's just say there, there would have to be much less federal backing. Oh yeah. There, there's tons of uh, forts and air force bases all over that state. Um, but I, I think it doesn't matter if you're, if you have all the bases covered, like you don't have to be self-sufficient to benefit from freedom and benefit from the government getting smaller, right? So you look at Singapore, right? They're, they're, they are horribly not self-sufficient, but they thrive. And uh, you just need freedom. That's all you need. Yeah, I, I would consider moving to Singapore if they would let me bring my guns, but... <laughs> I was going to say, oh, uh, 
something that you and Jeff had kind of brought up in one of the episodes y'all were talking about, um, were there things that I, I think it was something to the effect of like, what are some other things that we could do well without the government? And I was going to, I was going to bring up charities, you know, and like, I, you know, I think we've done a lot of harm in this country with the way that the government has stepped in. Um, you know, I think with social programs and stuff, you can look at data, but like church involvement in the community and, you know, like the Elk Lodge or whatever, you know, uh, these fraternal organizations that used to do these charitable things, they're, they're all drying up because it's, it's easier for people to just go stand in line at the, at the office, you know, the government office and get it. And so there's not really any point for, for them. Anyway. I mean, churches still obviously have, you know, our faith side of things, but, but as far as being able to reach out in the community, people are more resistant to that because they don't want to have any kind of strings attached. But I think if we moved back off of the government system, you know, you'd be able to see more of that kind of stuff that really helps people and says like, Hey, yeah, like, let me help you here. But there's also this other area of your life that like, you're sabotaging yourself. Let us kind of come alongside you and help you realize that. Yeah, I think that's a good example. The charity has, well, we're still pretty charitable, uh, but I do think that we will know our neighbors more. We will be more uh, close with our local communities and less worried about uh, New York City, right? And one of our shows, we talked about the cultural I, I, I don't even know if we've actually uh, put that one out yet. So we're about to put out an episode on <laughs> the cultural uh, consequences of fiat money. And it, it was okay. from a Mises Institute lecture that we watched and then we commented on it. But uh, um, I mean, it's, it's through all phases of society uh, or uh, all places in society is, is this cultural consequence of fiat money and charity is a really good example you you have the nanny state so you don't uh, you you might not take care of that guy that you see struggling because he can go to the government and maybe you're even told that that is the proper role for government your role is not to look out for your fellow man your goal is to go to work make money so you can buy shit for your kids that they don't need right and the uh, when we have not when we have a hard money sound money thing we have better morals better ethics uh we do take care of our neighbors more so uh, i i agree with you i think charity will skyrocket yeah and i think you know someone says um you know the other side not just that like the uh, there's this expectation of well that's the government's job, but, but because the government has done it, you go, well, the government's already taking 30% of my check or whatever it is. Like it's hard for me to, to pull more out of what I'm spending for me and my family or whatever. And I think if you go, if you, you know, if you're not paying taxes or even if we had a greatly reduced tax burden, it's like, Hey, I have more of my own money now to go and help people in the way that I see fit. That's, that's more efficient than what they're doing with it. Great point great point and you can help them get on their feet easier like yeah. now, like now it's you don't uh i mean what is your option you can take them to a shelter or something or you know they put them into the system basically but uh in a in a community in a future where we don't have fiat money 
and your community is tighter, there's going to be the community safety net. Maybe they have a way to get them a job, right? And so you you take them to the church and the church has connections to get this guy a job or this girl or whatever. Take care of the homeless kids if they have kids. And, and so, there, yeah, there's going to be much better productive safety net uh, for those people, I believe. Cool. Okay, so real quick, uh, how do you help friends or family out of the cult of statism? Because I have I have a coworker, and it's like uh, we agree on a lot of things, and then it's like you start talking about Bitcoin, and there's just a a disconnect, and she just uh, I'm not trying to call her out. If I don't, I know she's not going to listen to this, but anyway, (laughs) (laughs) but. you know, there's just this, and it's not just her, it's a lot of people. They, when you get down to it and they'll agree with you about, oh yeah, the government's inefficient and you, they'll agree with you to a certain point, And then you just go, okay, but then why don't we just get rid of it? Like why they're lying to you and they're not using your money the right way. And there's, there's a point where they go, well, I just, I just have to believe that they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what we touched on earlier. They've shut off that part of their brain. That's critical thinking. Uh, I on Twitter this guy just today because I said something about uh, why would we trust the biggest scammers to actually be the regulators, right? Because yeah, I saw that the government you have Social Security is a scam, um, WMD in Iraq is a scam, uh, the Federal Reserve is a scam. All I mean, it's the biggest scams are run by the government. So why would we trust them to police other scams? It just doesn't make any sense. So uh, some guy said. Um, yeah, but we need something like we need the government to uh, look at or no, who who's going to do it if not the government. And before I even started the, the conversation, I was like, okay, first, we need to agree that the government is the worst choice. Because if we can't agree on that, then it's going to it's going to be a circle fight, you know, back and forth. So we have to set the principle right. The very first thing you need to agree on is the government sucks and that it is inefficient and it makes everything worse. Now we agree on that. Now we can try to figure out a way to solve it. Um, Maybe that's wrong, (laughs) but I think really sticking to your guns about that of first agreeing at the very beginning. That's also in rhetorical argument. You want to get them to agree to something at the beginning before you try to convince them of something else. Yeah. I've heard another way is like, okay, well you do, do people have rights and where do those rights come from? Because if, you know, does, does a person say they just, you know, pop up in some random country that doesn't have any established government, you know, say there's wild wilderness or whatever, do they have human rights? Well, yeah, they do. So, so then the rights don't come from the government. And I think that's a, that's another good place to start from. Yeah, freedom of speech too. Everybody kind of believes in freedom of speech, so it drill down on that a little bit. All right, recommended books. If you had to pick the top, I don't know, three to five books that you would recommend that you think everybody needs to read. Okay, so typical Austrian stuff is uh, Rothbard, A New Liberty. You probably have had other people talk about that yeah. one. Uh, the Bitcoin Standard, obviously. Uh, this new, the new Seyfedin Amus's book. Uh, it's really, really good. It's, it's an Austrian book. So, uh, you can get a lot of the Austrian, uh, 
background by reading the Bitcoin standard. Also, another one, if you're a big reader and you like <laughs> history and stuff like that, um, Rothbard has another one called The History of Economic Thought, and it's several volumes, so it's a pretty big read, but it's fascinating going with Rothbard throughout the history of of money and thought, you know, in the Western, in the Western world. So that's good. And then the last thing I'll say is do your own research, Google cypherpunks, Google, uh, you know, things about Bitcoin and do reading on the past, go into Bitcoin talk and, and look back at the early conversations, get on, you know, the archives of the mailing list and read what those guys said. I mean, it's really dry, obviously, but uh, for people that are really curious, it's it's a fascinating uh, adventure that you go on when you start reading about the history of the internet, the history of the cypherpunks, and uh, what this this whole era really meant. And finally, um, I want to say that I believe that the the market. Bitcoin, the financial system, everything that we talk about, government, it's all part of a holistic whole and um, it, everything affects everything else. So if you can kind of do your own research from that kind of perspective, I think you will gain a lot of insights. I hope that made sense. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So um, how can people keep up with you? On Twitter, Ansel Lindner. Uh, or you can find my podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, all the main ones. I'm going to be soon possibly uh, putting this, the Anarchy is Freedom, onto my free stream. So that will people will be able to hear past episodes and also new episodes of that show. So there'll be a double stream there. Gotcha. But you, sh- you, know, you guys should go to Patreon and, uh, and support Ansel. Uh, anyway, because he does good work, his show's good, um, and and the other stuff on Patreon is good too. So, um, all right, anything else you want to say? No, thanks for having me on. It was great meeting you. I had a fun uh, chat. Yeah, this was awesome. Thanks for coming on. Okay, gang, that's all the interview we have time for today because of a few things I want to go over before we're done. If you want to hear the full-length version of that interview, I've made it available on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash bitcoin. Anybody who signs up for a $5 per month plan gets access to that feed. And this is something I'm going to be starting doing probably so that I don't have to cut as much content or so that I can make full length versions of these interviews I'm doing available if that's something you're interested in. I just want to reiterate something that Ansel and I went over about the military in that interview. Um, When I originally scheduled and recorded that episode, or this episode about anarchy, I didn't realize I would be releasing it the day after Memorial Day. And I realized that that might seem insensitive to some people, and I'm sorry, but I'm doing it anyway. If you are listening outside of the U.S., this probably doesn't even matter to you. Um, But in the U.S., we make a big deal out of Memorial Day. And, um, you know, it's for all the soldiers who have died in various wars. And you'll hear this line repeated all the time. We have these freedoms because men and women gave their lives to protect them. And, you know, like Ansel and I talked about, I think there are genuinely people who joined the military and joined up 
uh, to fight in these various wars and battles because that's what they believed. I think their intention, I think they were well-meaning. Um, but the reality is I, I don't accept that that's really what happened. Um, you know, basically every U.S. war, every war that the U.S. has been involved in, um, almost all of them at least, didn't require the U.S. to be involved. You know, you heard it yourself from Ansel. He said he was in for in the military for 10 years. And he realized very quickly that, you know, they weren't going over there to protect American freedoms. The Army just recently promoted, I think it's 18th general over the war in Afghanistan. You know, we've been there for basically 17 years. Think about that. Okay. There are boys being recruited to fight in these radical groups to fight U.S. military because their entire lives they've grown up seeing U.S. soldiers occupying their land. Um, I'm not saying Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or Saddam or Assad or any of these people are noble people. They're not, I'm not saying they're good people. But what I'm saying is we've done nothing to make it better and a lot of what we've done has made it worse. Um, you know, if you have more questions on that, I cannot recommend highly enough Scott Horton's book, Fool's Errand. That's about the war in Afghanistan, but it touches on Iraq a lot as well. Um, he also has a show called The Scott and Horton Show. Uh, it's a podcast. So he talks to a lot of foreign policy experts and not the garbage that you see on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, but like real people who've really been to these places. So you should t- check out check out his book, check out his show. It's good stuff. Um, honestly, I, I hesitate to say this because I realize this can really offend people, but uh, and I'll probably get some flack for saying this, but we shouldn't have been in Vietnam. We shouldn't have been in Korea. We probably shouldn't have been in World War II, at least not the way it was done. And we're definitely not in World War I. Um, I can recommend good resources if you're curious farther about, about my opinions on that and why I don't think we should have been involved in those. Um, you know, but basically every time the powers that be decide that they want to be involved in something, they make these big sweeping moral arguments like, oh, we have to go to these places when it's about geopolitical influence and power and resources. Um, it's not about freedom. It's definitely not about American freedom. Um, that's a tragedy that we have friends and family and co-workers who have been sent willingly because they believed they were doing it for you and me, and they've been sent to kill and be killed for politicians so that our government can become more powerful, basically is the majority of what it is, or for special interest groups, or to sell more weapons for Lockheed Martin or Boeing or, you know, or whatever the, you know, this equipment is, um, you know, it's, it's the war machine and that's what it's about. And it's not about your freedom and my freedom. If you have family or friends that have given their lives in war, I, I hope they meant well. But we've got to stop glorifying war. And we've got to stop pretending that it's about our freedom here at home when it's not. You know, um, I think the best way that we can honor those who gave up their lives is to stop sending people into these pointless wars. It's to stop creating more dead soldiers for things that have nothing to do with freedom here at home. So that's what I'm going to say about that. Like I said, check out Scott Horton's stuff. Um, you know, I, I would hope that by now Vietnam is pretty obvious that we shouldn't have been there, 
that it was not something that the U.S. needed to get involved in. Um, it, it really was about, oh, the, the Red Scare and the fear that, you know, if, if the Russians got involved or something like that, or if communism and socialism spread there, then it would just keep going to the whole world, which is just goofy. And we've seen, history has shown, you know, in the countries that we did not stay involved in, socialism collapses. You know, look at Vietnam now. We lost, we had, we were forced to pull out. And not too much longer, you know, the communist socialist regime collapsed, right? It's not that way anymore. But look at Korea. Look, we still can't stop poking our noses in it, and we haven't fixed anything. So, anyways, um, yeah, I could go on about that. I'm, I'm going to save us both some time here. But seriously, if you if you want to know more about this stuff, message me. I can send you, I can send you resources. I can post them or whatever. If, if that's something you're interested in, but, uh, but yeah. Okay. Anyway, if you guys want to support the show and get extras like access to these full length interviews, like I said, I think this is the way that I'm going to start going is the stuff that has to get cut. I'm just going to go ahead and put the full versions up on Patreon. If that's something you're interested in, go to patreon.com slash bottom shelf Bitcoin. If you want to support me with Bitcoin or PayPal, go to bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash donate. You can also buy books from the Tuttle Twins series about liberty and free market economics at bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash kidsbook. And part of your purchase, it doesn't change the price, but part of your purchase goes to helping support the show. Um, if you want to support in non-financial ways, you can go give us a good review on iTunes or Stitcher or any of those. You can share the episodes on Twitter or Facebook or Scuttlebutt or whatever social media you use. I'm not making that up. Scuttlebutt's a real one. You should check that out. And I've also started putting these episodes up on YouTube later in the week if you're the kind of person like my wife who likes to listen to the television instead of watching it. So um, there's, there's no special graphics on YouTube. It's just my voice. So anyway, but if that's what you prefer to do, uh, go check those out there. Like them, share them, whatever. All right, you are not going to want to miss our next episode. I've got self-proclaimed Bitcoin maximalist and president of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, Michael Goldstein, coming on to talk to us a little bit about Satoshi and about the Nakamoto Institute and kind of the history of Bitcoin, pre-Bitcoin, um, the, the forerunner programs and projects that led to this. So you don't want to miss that. Come back. For Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, I'm Josh Humphrey. Thanks for listening.